The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your mercy, for Your incredible, overwhelming love that You would enter into our world, take on flesh, uh, that You would make Yourself so vulnerable as to be born to a teenage mother and a poor carpenter. Um, but we, Lord, we, now we come to the portion of Your Scripture uh, that anticipates that, that it actually is, is in a sense, the beginning uh, of that story, or a, another beginning of that story, long, long before You came. And so we pray, God, that You would speak to our hearts, that You would touch us, uh, that You would teach us, and that You would draw our hearts to You to, uh, in this Advent season, anticipate uh, Your coming, and Your coming again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, nice to see you all. Happy Advent. Blessed Advent to you. Next week, next week the title of the class will be The Beginning of the End, even though I just, just said that this is the beginning of the end. But next, next week is um, David and Bathsheba, and also The Wisdom of Solomon. So, we'll be talking about David and Bathsheba. You can bring a fan or something like that to kind of keep you cool. Um, so, last week what we saw was that the people got what they wanted. If you remember, they got a king. Uh, they, they, um, he was the king they deserved. He was not the king they needed. Uh, Saul, King Saul, was the first king of Israel. Um, actually, I guess you could made the case that God was the first king of Israel uh, because when the people asked for a king, God told the prophet Samuel that they, this was not a rejection of him, it was a rejection of, it was not a rejection of Samuel, it was a rejection of God. And, um, and so, uh, but God gave them the king and he gave them a, an unexpected king, the least, uh, a man from the least tribe of, of uh, the least clan of the least tribe, uh, the tribe of Benjamin. And, um, and he was uh, tall and handsome, but that was really about the extent of his qualifications. Um, I mean, let's not let's not underestimate tall and handsome. But um, but in a, in fact, God does give Saul his spirit, and Saul actually has some really good military victories. But Saul demonstrates this repeated character flaw that perhaps you and I can relate to. He has a recurrent impulse to do what he wants to do rather than what God wants him to do. <laughs> Shock, gasp, awe. Um, and, and he does this repeatedly. And we see this, and this is really what, uh, what the author of uh, Samuel writes into it. He doesn't give a lot of theological explanation about this, he just makes the comment and it leaves it to us as the readers to interpret. But the, the obvious implication is that Saul is doing it uh, as the king, he's doing it repeatedly his way, and, and, and increasingly so. Uh, and God grows tired of this and, in fact, um, withdraws his spirit from Saul. Now, let's say just a little bit before we get into David, which um, we, we will, but let's just say that the, uh, it's not that all of Saul's decisions weren't logically sensible. 
for instance, he had a place to be, and they needed to make a sacrifice first, and Samuel seemed to be late, and he's the God-appointed king, and so he just made the sacrifice himself. Well, that was not his role. Another time, and really it was sort of the last straw, uh, he had uh, inquired of the Lord, shall we go up to fight again? I don't remember which tribe it was, um, uh, the, which uh, other people, the, it wasn't the Jebusites, but it was, it was one of the otherites. And, um, and he says, um, shall we go up? And the, God says, go up, I will give them into your hand, and you shall devote all of them and their livestock to destruction. And he didn't. And he withheld the king to kind of make a public spectacle of the king, and he withheld some of the best livestock in order to make a sacrifice to God. And you would think, I mean, in fact, Saul says, I was doing what was right. In fact, I, was, I held these out to make a sacrifice, and God said through Samuel, no, I said, kill them all. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense to us why God would say that. It makes more logical sense. And I just have been thinking a, a little bit about um, how sometimes are, are we, do we find ourselves put in the, in the situation where it seems more logical to do what we want than it does to obey God? Um, for, for, uh, for instance, um, lying to stay out of trouble uh, makes good sense to some short people I know uh, sometimes. <laughs> Logically. Um, um, or, you know, to get a discount. Uh, even even I, there was a um, uh, there was some discussion about uh, Caroline was going to a movie and uh, she's 13, but you get a discount if you're 12. And she said, oh, "I'll just tell them, Mom, I'm just Mom. I'll just tell them I'm 12, and that way I'll save money." Like she thinks I'm doing the right thing. I'll just tell them I'm 12. As I don't think she could pass for 12, but um, but she um, but and and of course Amy said. Well, great. If you can save three bucks, that's perfect. Um, no, no, she, no, no, no. She didn't say that. She didn't. Uh, she, she's not in here. I, I don't think she's in here. No, no. no she, of course she didn't say that. She didn't say that. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to. She said, it's, she said, she said, honey, you need to always know in your life it's not worth, you know, if you, your character is the only thing you got and, and your integrity and if you, if you have to lie in order to get what you want, then, then you don't need what you want. You know, and so, anyway, so that's that's. So it was a good, it was a good, it was a good life lesson. But it just makes sense. Uh, I'll say this, and I may be stepping on some toes, and I, um, but I'm just going to say it. Uh, another example that I see a lot, and I always want to treat folks in this situation very pastorally, kindly. But, um, and I'm not trying to make a big social stink about anything. So please don't. Anyway, but I'm just going to say, sometimes it makes a lot more logical sense to cohabitate before he does get married, in this day and age particularly. And, um, and that, is, that seems very logical. And, uh, and I, you know, as, as part of what I do in premarital counseling, I, I talk to these people all the time. And, and it's, you know, we walk through this and say there is a reason that God has set a boundary around sexual activity. And, you know, okay, we can live together and not be sexually active, but... Probably not. So, um, but it makes good sense, doesn't it? I, you know, marriage is a big commitment. I want to find out if I'm compatible with this person, and um, and so that it seems responsible. 
Uh, it seems logical. Now, if you've been in that situation, or your children are in that situation, I'm not passing judgment on that. That's just, it's part of the culture. You, they may not know. Or they may not have been told. And that's fine. We treat, we, we help people wherever they are. I mean, in their spiritual journey. I don't understand what you're talking about. Could I elaborate? So you don't understand what this activity thing Oh, no, no. Well, see me after class. Um, it's just, that's a, I, to me, that's as culturally relevant an example as I can think of in a way that just, it makes good sense, and yet there is a good, even better reason that God has put a, a fence around sexual activity between, in the context of marriage. And so, anyway, we always do walk, I don't dodge it, I walk through it with, but with them in my office with the door closed. Um, so, actually, so Saul, it makes good sense to Saul that he, um, it makes good sense that he would do the things that he did. It seems logical. God will, in fact, he, when Samuel tells him he's done the wrong thing, he repents and asks the Lord to forgive him, and God says no. Which at least gives me a lot of fear and pause. Because the, um, the law is accusing. God says this, we transgress it, that is it. Now, you and I have Jesus. Don't think that's the end of the story. We, we have forgiveness. But um, without Christ, the law is an imposing, imposing uh, force. So David, you know, so we come there. God is, has withdrawn his spirit from Saul. And we come to David. And David, hey, honey, good to see you. Um, I'll tell you later. If they tell you, don't believe them. Um, one of the kids accidentally just dumped stuff all Aww. over from here to here, so I'm on, I'm I'm, on mom duty, sorry. I'm sure you handled it perfectly. Um, Whatever it is, I'm sure it was fine. We're an open book. No. no. Um, <laughs> and we're back. All right. Um, so... David uh, is uh, anointed king, another unlikely king, right? And so, so God picks the eighth son of Jesse. You would think it'd be the first son, the second, you know, maybe the second son, but not the eighth son. So I'm going to just read a little bit from chapter 16, verses six and seven. When they came, he looked. He talked about the sons of uh, the sons of Jesse. That Sam, he had, God had told Samuel to go, to go to Jesse and pick out one of his sons. Uh, but I'll tell you which son. So when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. It doesn't mean he's re- judged him. He's just not his choice to be king. I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, that is good news in some case. Bad news if your heart is, uh, looks like mine does sometimes without Christ. So, um, so then they go through Abinadab and, um, and Shema and some other, all the sons. And finally, uh, Samuel says to Jesse, are, are all your sons here? And, um, and Jesse says, uh, where I lost my well, there's the youngest, but he's out with the sheep. And Samuel says to Jesse, "We'll send to get him, and we'll not sit down till he comes." 
he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. I just, gosh, I'd love to know what that was like. I mean, all of them going, what is happening? Why did you pass me up? And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went. Uh, so, it, he, the Spirit of the Lord is upon David from this time forward. He's just a boy. And we see him probably a few years later now, and the, uh, the Israelites are gather, gathered against their just perennial enemies, the Philistines. And they've come out to the battlefield, and they're sort of like two mountainsides, two hillsides in a valley uh, beneath them, and the Israelites are on one hill, and the Philistines are on the other, and the Philistines have Goliath, who was like, he says, it says six cubits in a span. So a cubit is 18 inches. He's six of those. That's what, nine feet? And a span of a hand? So he's, he's like 10 feet tall. You know? And, and, you know, any NBA team would be just, you know, killing for this guy. He bumps his head on the rim. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, he, he was huge. I mean, is that a little... Uh, um, are they expanding the uh, little elaboration there? Um, I, I maybe. I don't know. But he was, nevertheless, a very large and very fearsome warrior. Um, his, he, and he goes through sort of what his, um, what his armor was like. And it was, it was just way more than, than any, anybody else's. He had a, a javelin uh, made of bronze and a, and a shirt of mail that was like 20 pounds. And, and all. Anyway, he, um, he is... Uh, defying the ranks of Israel, give me a man that we may fight together, and so um, and so he's just saying, uh, we will challenge you to one-on-one duel. Essentially, you send out your champion, I'll fight him. If you if he kills me, then we surrender, and and vice versa. And of course, the Israelites are like, thanks, but no thanks. You know, like I, uh, there's nobody who can stand before this man. Uh, Goliath. Now, one of the, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because um, the, the the thing that I wanted to to point out is that David and Goliath is a story that is um, has made its way into the fabric of our culture. In fact, I feel like I've said this before. I read a story about a pastor who is meeting with a, a someone who is just brand new to Christian faith, maybe not even a Christian yet, and they were in a, in a small group Bible study, and they went through the story of David and Goliath, and the guy pulled him aside later, he's like, I don't know anything of what you're talking about, I didn't even know David and Goliath was in the Bible, like it just, but, and, which says something important, it says that, um, that he, under, he knew that story, because it's made its way, when any, any underdog is a David and Goliath, you know, is a story, any underdog story, uh, you know the when one team is you know uh, is facing another team or or one company is being taken over by a corporate giant or whatever it is it's a David and Goliath story and we often might think about David and Goliath's story in terms of um, if you have faith like David did then you can fight your own giants too 
That's sort of the Sunday school lesson. It's not a bad lesson, but it's not the first lesson. And I find, personally, the first lesson that comes before that, and we'll get to it, but the first lesson much more compelling and actually much more empowering for the second lesson, which is if you have the faith, then you can fight your giants too. Because when I hear that, I think, oh gosh, I don't know if I'm going to have enough faith to fight my giants. So, um, we will get uh, to that. Dave, of course, Saul is the king. David is, is, a, is just a boy. And... Um, He's, I'm, surely, he's a young teenager at this point. Um, but he, he's tending the sheep. His dad says, I've got some leftover pizza. Please take it up to your, uh, to your, son, to your brothers. Uh, they're fighting the battle. David goes up there, takes some lunch, and um, says, what's going on here? Because he sees Goliath. And Goliath is shouting and said, you know, we're gonna, somebody's going to have to fight this guy, and then we're going to lose, and we're going to be... And, and David is... Because remember, the Spirit of the Lord has rushed upon David. David is incredulous that someone would dare to defy the army of the Lord. <laughs> and here is this optimistic little boy saying, "You come on, you can take him." You know, like I just, um, it, it would have been asinine uh, to a seasoned warrior to look across the battlefield and think, "I can take this guy." Um, and, and in fact, his brothers get, get mad at him. But David starts asking around and, um, and says, and finally he says, I'll fight him. And, um, and his claim, his offer to fight, it makes it to Saul. And it is amazing to me that Saul would consent. It seems so irresponsible that the king of a nation would allow a child to go out even, okay, so you, you beat a lion who was trying to get your, your sheep. Okay, but this is, the whole. And there's a lot on the line here. And so, um, I mean, in fact, Saul says, you're not able to go up against this Philistine to fight with him. You're, you're but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there was a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. (laughs) Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. That guy's got some moxie. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. you Yes. You just got done saying that Saul always, or sometimes did the logical thing that seemed to make sense and didn't listen to God. Now he's listening to God doing the non-logical thing. Well, that's a good point, Josh. Thank you uh, for pointing that out. Um, I... um, it was not logical. I mean, there have been some cracks in the judgment of Saul already, to be sure. But it doesn't, there's no, again, there's no theological commentary. It doesn't say God spoke to Saul and said, do this. Um, so, but he lets it. And Saul clothed David. It obviously, I think, I mean, you, you make a good point. Obviously, this is the hand of God working in this situation. Saul clothed David with his armor, put a helmet of bronze on him, clothed him with a coat of mail, 
strapped his sword over his armor, he, and he couldn't walk, right? He's just, he's weighed down, little, little David, takes it all off. Um, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. The Philistine moved forward. You can see the warrior approaching him from across the battlefield, and he suddenly realizes he's a lot closer than I thought he was. He looks small, far off, and he's, but actually he's just small, you know. And so, and he has that um, funny line: am I, "Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks?" And, um, and the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. I mean, he's just a fierce warrior, just inciting fear in this little boy. But there is no fear in this little boy. Um, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and Cut off your head! That just would have sounded so crazy. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. And so the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, and David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine in the forehead, and he fell to the ground. David took out, it reads like he took the Philistine's own sword, and he chopped off his head. And the Philistine said, Ah! And they scatter. There's no commentary. Again, there's no... God directed the stone, or um, the angel of the Lord came and, and you know helped David. Nothing like that. David just has unbelievable faith, moxie, grit, courage, and um, and it happens perfectly. And um, somebody would say, was it a miracle? No, it wasn't a miracle because he, it was his skill. I think it was a miracle. I think it was the spirit of God. Uh, it was certainly the movement of God upon uh, David and certainly using his skill. Uh, but the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout, pursued the Philistines, and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. And, and so he starts to get noticed, of course. So, the first lesson before there can be a lesson about if you just have faith like David, and you can face your giants. The first lesson has to be that the precedent here is set that one warrior stands on behalf of the people of God to face the enemies of God. That one appointed son of man, son of God, stands in front of the armies of God and fights their battle for them in a way that they could not for they would have been defeated. And in this sense, even from his earliest adventure, David prefigures Jesus Christ, who stands before us on our behalf and faces the enemy of sin and death on our behalf and cuts off the head of the snake and holds it up before the Lord and, um, so that we might uh, have victory. All of Israel 
could claim that victory. In the same way that all of Birmingham last night claimed the victory, we won! We won! Ah, no. (laughs) They didn't win. Like, 50 guys in, in, in white shirts won. But everybody gets to say, we won. And many times, whether for Florida and Florida State, you've had your, you've had your turns, and Georgia will have their turn, I promise. They have. But um, I'm a South Carolina fan. We have not gotten our turn yet. So, um, but uh, just think of it. We always get to say, oh, we won. We did it. Or you're a political candidate or whatever it is. We won. You didn't win. But you, that victory is imputed to you. And so... David's victory is imputed to the whole armies of Israel just like Jesus' victory is imputed to you and to me. And in His strength, because Jesus has defeated sin and death, and because, therefore, the Spirit of God uh, is available to you and to me, then in that strength, we can face our giants. So I don't know what your giant is, the one that is breathing at you from across the battlefield saying, I will feed your flesh to the birds of the air. It might be cancer. It might be a, just a crummy boss. It might be a marriage that's crumbling apart. It might be a child that's, uh, or a grandchild that's sick or um, prodigal or whatever it is. But you can face it. You know, I don't know what victory looks like. But because He has defeated the ultimate giant, you can face the giants that He brings your way. I do not buy the line that says... You, God will never give you more than you can handle. Because if He can't give you more than you can handle, then what do you need Him for? But I can promise you that He'll never give you more than He can handle. Now, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what handling it looks like. I pray for people uh, often that uh, for, to be cured, and they're not. Um, but I trust that God is in it according to His great plan. So again, I don't know what that looks like for you, but to me that is the first story of David and Goliath, is how David prefigures Christ. And then we can take the Sunday school lesson that you can face your giants. Feedback, pushback, questions? Yes, Melinda. I was going to say, not only the Holy Spirit coming into this faith, but just His connection that He had for the love did you see where that adult, oh, excuse me, that adult woman jumped on the train tracks to save her mother? Did you see that? On the I did not actually. Her, so she was waiting for the train with her daughter, and some man came and pushed her, and she fell on the tracks. And her daughter jumped down immediately and pulled her to the middle and laid with her. They said they don't know why they didn't get electrocuted because the train went over them. Now she sustained more injuries than her mother. She had always broken bones, her mm. grit, her. She had a lung collapse, all this stuff. I mean, that was the miracle I see in that. But what I see when you're telling that story is that, you know, he had the faith because of the Spirit being with him, but he had learned to love God, and because of that love, he trusted him, and he would do anything for him. Yeah, so the Spirit rushes upon him as the Spirit rushes upon us, and by that Spirit within us, we love God, we respond to his love for us, we love because he first loved us. So yeah, I, I think you're right to say that David loved loved God. And that's what God means when he says he looks at him uh, in the, he looks on the heart. Because David does some pretty rotten stuff. But the difference between Saul and David is that David, it, 
the rotten stuff that he does breaks David's heart. And so, I mean, to me, that's, that's one of the lessons of, of discipleship that we get from, from so the contrast between David and Saul. So, thank you. The next chapter in Essential 100 is uh, that First uh, Samuel 23 and 24. So that's going to be chapter, what, 34, I think. Um, David spares Saul's life. It, it is, uh, I don't want to spend much time on that. It's just, it's the, it's the strange instance where Saul goes into a cave. He's looking for David. He's actually going to the bathroom. David's in the cave, cuts off a piece of Saul's robe, does not hold up a hand against, um, against Saul because David, where, where Saul is pragmatic and is going to take matters into his own hands, David is passive in the sense that he is going to let God fight his own battles. And, um, and actually, when they, he calls out to Saul and says, I've got the corner of your cloak. I, I'm assuming Saul took off his cloak and put it in another corner. But, um, and, and David cut it off there. But he said, I've got the, the corner of your cloak. He says, I hope God takes vengeance upon you, but I'm not going to do it. So there's a great contrast there between David who trusts God in every circumstance and Saul who lost his faith and become paranoid and jealous and vengeful. But what I really want to focus on for the rest of our uh, 10 minutes or so is 2 Samuel 5-7, to which is the last chapter we're going to cover today, chapter 35 in the E100. Um, Saul and Jonathan have both died in battle. David has made the king over his own tribe, Judah. And, uh, and he reigns there over Judah in Hebron. But uh, Saul's other son, not Jonathan, but Ishbosheth, Ishbosheth, uh, is made the king of the other 11 tribes because he was in line. And there's actually a minor battle between uh, Judah and Israel, and Judah is victorious. But nothing's really settled between uh, the 11 tribes and, um, and Judah. But Ishbosheth gets murdered by these marauders who think they're doing David a favor. If we kill Ishbosheth, we bring David Ishbosheth's head, and he will reward us with seats on the cabinet, right? But what does David do? You've raised your hand against the Lord's anointed, and he kills both of those guys. Nevertheless, there is no king in Israel at this point, and all of Israel comes around David and said, you, when you used to lead us out in battle when you worked for Saul as his general, and we're going to follow you. So David becomes the king of all, unites the kingdom uh, and of Israel. And it's at this point where David um, drives the Jebusites out of Jerusalem and Bethlehem, and he takes over Bethlehem as his city, the city of David. Bethlehem becomes the city of David, which obviously becomes important in this season, uh, this Advent season, as, as we see Joseph and Mary going to Bethlehem because it's the city uh, of David. Now, what happens, though, is that David begins to take many wives and concubines. And this was socially acceptable because he was the king. He needed to have as many heirs and uh, uh, progeny as, as possible. It was socially acceptable. The author gives no theological comment, but I think it's mentioned because we see even here that cracks are beginning to form in the foundation. Um, that's sort of the precursor. Uh, to David and Bathsheba, which we'll talk about next week. But David gets the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He dances before the Lord uh, wearing a linen ephod. Um, 
and then we get to chapter 7. David is in his home. There's, uh, I don't know that there's peace really on every side, but he's, he's really establishing himself as the king. And he realizes, I've got this. I, we've built this nice house for me here, uh, but God lives in a tent. So I'm going to make a, a house for God. He approaches his, his prophet, Nathan, who says, go, do what you want to do. But Nathan hears from the Lord that night. And this is 2 Samuel chapter 7. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. So there's that prophetic word given there. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people? saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And listen, we're here today talking about David, right? His word, God's words to him were, were spoken true. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, declares uh, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity... I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Who is God talking about? Is he talking about Solomon? So some of you are saying, no, he's talking about Jesus. Anybody disagree? Well, only thing no, I dare not disagree. It's, 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 it sounds like a squirrel, but I think it's... Jesus had no sin, but he says when he commits iniquity, I will put upon him the stripes of men. That's right. Mm. So maybe he's not talking about Jesus. Or when Jesus takes on all our sin. But he had to leave his divinity in order to be this person who had the appearance of sin, except there was that was it was the shadow sin. Well, so let's not. He didn't leave his divinity. He never ceased to be God. But he he um but he did take upon our iniquity and receive the stripes of men for sure. The the uh, so 
I, he is talking about Solomon in part and Jesus in full. There are lots of times where there's lots of times where prophets speak a little better than they know. Like when Isaiah, and I'm sure we'll get to it, Isaiah 53, uh, the Lord has placed on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah didn't have Jesus in mind particularly, a cross or anything like that. He was 700 years early, you know, but, but Isaiah spoke better than he knew. Um, Nathan is speaking a little better than he knows. But it would have sounded strange to say his throne will be established forever but what they would have understood that to be, David and Nathan probably too, is that there will always be someone from David sitting on the throne of Israel. Well, well, as we will see, as we see the kings unfold, that there are a few faithful kings, but most of them are, are delinquent in their faith, and they get overtaken by the Babylonians. Cast into exile. So, yes, Solomon will build a house for God. But the house, so that's the prophecy in part. And he does receive discipline because he does some knuckleheaded things. But Jesus takes our discipline and establishes the house of God forever. We're in and out. We're part of the church universal. So this says something to me about the character of God. That He is abundant in His giving. And He is in complete control even though the political... Uh, situation of our world looks absolutely like it has gone off the rails which it did in Israel then and you may or may not think probably there's a variety of opinion even in this room as to whether in our own system we can apply that but that's not what it is is that God is always in control and he is always fulfilling because he has always placed his king David's son on the throne forever said in the sermon last week, the geography of the kingdom of God is the hearts of the followers of Christ. David responds to this incredible prophecy, this incredible covenant prophecy with this great prayer of gratitude. And given that we only have two minutes, I, I want to uh, just commend you to go and read 2 Samuel 7, especially, so I've talked about the first part, read the first part, but read the second part starting with verse 18 and just see David's humility, but at the end of the prayer, David is, because God has said it is so, David has the strength to pray, let what you have said be made true. In other words, God has said some amazing things about David's and David's line. And so David, because God said it will be true, David has the strength to say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, essentially. I'm going to stop there, and next week we will look at 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and then 1 Kings 2 and 3. I'll try to put that up on the e-news uh, this week. I'm sorry I hadn't been there the last couple of weeks. Um, for 2 Samuel 11 and 12, 1 Kings 2 and 3, David and Bathsheba, Wisdom of Solomon. Any questions before, maybe one or two questions, one or two thoughts? Yes, Susie. Um, I'm questioning, is this the beginning of when... Jerusalem was known for the Pharisees as being the real seat and the Levites were kind of like the local local clergy and they they didn't they could acknowledge other places for worship besides Jerusalem but in David's time was it Jerusalem was the only place of real sacrifice 
for worship? Well, there's a difference between a synagogue and a temple. A temple was the dwelling place of God. A synagogue was a place of discussion. So, so synagogue would be sort of like, sort of like church, although we understand that we're the temple of God. But the, the Jerusalem, that was the capital established then, particularly under Solomon, because he he built the temple, right? Solomon's temple. So. Um, but yes, this is the beginning of Jerusalem is really the, the capital. It was called Jebus before that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? Yeah, Katie? Well, not a question, but I think it's interesting in David and Goliath that David picked up five stones. He, he really uh, wasn't sure he'd be able to do it with one, you know. And to me, the miracle was that that first stone hit Goliath exactly where it had to yeah. um, for him to be killed. Yeah. yeah. And he was smart enough to do it, yeah, from a distance. You know, like that, yeah, that's, that's right. But yeah, no, no I, th- I mean, I think so. I mean, I, th- I, I think anybody who says it's not a miracle needs to make sure that they're saying that hand, God's hand was in it. And then if God's hand's in it, that's... Teaches them to be prepared. Yeah. Be prepared, that's <laughs> right. Just one sharp number two pencil. Yeah. Right. Plan, and then, plan and say your prayers. All right, good work. Go in peace to love and to serve the Lord.